This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Dr. Anthony Fauci is a leading voice in the U.S. coronavirus response. He's one of the scientists who flanks President Trump at the nightly briefings from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. And Americans are looking to Fauci to tell them what their future might be. Americans, including me. I think you're on mute. I can't hear you. But now you can. Now I can. I presume you're old school with the phone use. I am so old school you can't imagine. (laughs) With people stuck at home until the end of April and the economy at a halt, we asked Dr. Fauci to come on the show and tell us how he thinks all of this will end and how we create a new normal in the meantime. Today on the show, a conversation about the future with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Tuesday, April 7th. Yesterday at the task force briefing, you were asked about what going back to normal looks like. And that's kind of what we want to drill down on today. Sure. What are the specific signposts you are looking for to indicate we're ready to end these strict restrictions? Okay, so it's a great question, but the issue really that needs to be understood is that this is a big country that has outbreaks with different kinetics. So when you say get back to normal, you're really talking about a real clear indication that those areas like New York City, like New Orleans, like Detroit, that have big outbreaks with peaks have not only stabilized in the number of new cases and hospitalizations, but have actually turned the corner and are starting to come down. And, and history with other countries tell us that once you turn that corner and come down, the decline is pretty steep. So you're going to need to have confidence that in areas like New York and New Orleans and others, that not only have you plateaued, stabilized, but you're coming down. I don't think you need to get down to zero before you can start contemplating gradually relieving some of the restrictions. It isn't a like a light switch on and off. It's a gradual pulling back on certain of the restrictions to try and get society a bit back to normal, not only because there are some vital functions that we need to attend to, but also for economic reasons. Bottom line is it's going to be gradual. It's not going to be all or none. I want to talk about those gradual steps. But before we do, when you talk about we're going to flatten the curve, we're going to slow the spread of this virus, how far on the other side do we need to be before we can start pulling back on these restrictions? You know, it really is almost the kinetics of a curve you have to see a really steep decline on a day-by-day basis. What you don't want to see is a little sawtoothed up and down, up and down, that looks like it might be trending down. It's not like it's trending down. It's got a like steep going down. 
And when you see that, then you could start thinking about that. But you got to make sure you're absolutely going in the right direction. Now, one point of clarification, when we talk about the rate coming down, is that moving toward zero cases or zero deaths? Um, Deaths always lag behind cases. There's cases, hospitalization, intensive care, and death. You could have a dramatic decrease in cases and the deaths are still going up because the deaths lag about two to two and a half weeks after the cases. So I look more at the cases because you expect that a certain percentage of people who go into intensive care and require intubation are going to die. That's the unfortunate fact of it. So deaths are the last thing that stop. When the deaths stop, then you know you're in good shape. Can you talk us through those stages of starting to return to normal when those numbers are coming down at a rate that would make you feel comfortable? Now, right now, it's all physical separation. Nobody more than 10 people, six feet distance, no restaurants, no bars, no sports events. When you gradually come back, you don't jump into it with both feet. You say, you know, what are the things that you could still do and still approach normal? One of them is absolute compulsive hand washing. The other one is you don't ever shake anybody's hands. <laughs> That's clear. The other thing, depending upon your status, the possibility that when you are in a group of people that you can't avoid the six-foot limit and you can't stay out of 10 feet, that you might want to wear a cloth face protection, better known as a mask. We don't use the word mask because we don't want people to take masks away from the healthcare providers that need them. But you could still approach a degree of normality and under certain circumstances, be wearing a mask. And people say, wait a minute, that's not normal. You're wearing a mask. But it is trying to get back to some form of normality. In your task force briefings, you don't stand six feet apart. It doesn't look like it. And you're not wearing masks. Yeah. Again, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good here. (laughs) So the task force group is a little bit different. Since we're around the president, I spend at least an hour and sometimes more with the president every day. So it's got to be clear that we're not endangering him. So I get tested frequently, (laughs) you know, and I get my temperature taken eight, nine times a day. Every time you go into a different room in the White House, you get your temperature taken. So I don't think you should judge the use or not of masks and physical separation, what you see with the task force for the rest of the country. It really is different. Okay, so let's get back to the rest of the country. Like, are we going to start having restaurants be half full for a while or offices only bring in half their staff, like paint us a picture of not just the human behavioral changes that may stick with us, but actually how can we go to the ball game? Okay, so you bring up a good point. I could see that. I could see in certain places people saying, hey, we're going to get back to normal, but guess what? We have a restaurant that has 200 seats. Oh, that's too much. That's a big restaurant. I don't like big restaurants. Has 50 seats. We're going to only let 25 people in at the same time. I mean, you could see people on their own doing that. You could see people saying, we're going to go to an event, but we're going to limit the number of people that can come in. I mean, it's just the creativity and the ingenuity of the American people to phase back without just saying, okay, all bets are off. We're going right back to normal. 
but can I, as a resident of New York City, hug my 77-year-old mother with vulnerable respiratory systems? I mean, I don't think you should do that now. You're in New York City. You're in a very vulnerable situation with regard to the infection. But, you know, when this goes down and gets down to almost zero, when we get to that, then I think what's important, and this is something I think we need to talk about on this podcast, and that is there's an antibody test that will be widely distributed pretty soon in the next few weeks that will allow you to know whether or not you actually have been infected. Because the antibody test doesn't test for the virus. It tests whether you have been infected and recovered from the virus. So I can imagine a situation where you take an antibody test and you are absolutely positive that you were infected and you did well. Then you could hug the heck out of your grandmother and not worry about it. What you're talking about, is this achievable by April 30th, the date that the White House is set to end these restrictions? Well, remember, the White House did not say end in the sense of completely end. They said, first of all, that we're going to extend it for 30 days and we're going to reevaluate on 30 days. Now, what we're hoping for is that well before we get to the 30-day extension of the guidelines, that you're starting to see those changes in patterns that you and I have been discussing for the last couple of minutes. Okay, these changes in patterns can happen with these massive mitigation efforts that are in place. But we're a country of many states. So isn't there a challenge in the U.S., in reopening the U.S. right now, that different places are opening at different speeds? You're absolutely correct. No doubt. In fact, there are some places in the country right now that are doing a modest amount of physical separation who are doing really quite well. They might even elect to stay at that because it is not as disruptive to their society. There are other parts of the country, because it's necessary and appropriate, are having very stringent physical separation. I mean, take the ordeal that you guys in New York have been going through. Now, obviously, the relaxation of the uh, stringent separation is going to be a different situation in New York than it is in Omaha, Nebraska, and different than it is maybe in Iowa. But, you know, it's probably going to be similar to what you're seeing in New Orleans and in Detroit. But this virus has just spread everywhere so quickly. So as soon as you open the spigot of travel and people are on the Acela, are we not going to just start spreading it all over again and having outbreaks? It is possible. And that's the reason why, if you've been listening and looking at the now somewhat interminable White House press briefings, <laughs> I just, just standing up there is, is you know, it's, can, it, it can be where You were I, sitting down yesterday. I was sitting down yesterday. They gave me a break to sit down. No, it really is a very good point. And that's the reason why, if you're even going to consider a relaxation of this stringent physical separation. You absolutely have to have in place the capability of doing rapid, efficient identification, isolation, and contact tracing. Because right now, New York City is in mitigation. You're not really in containment. You have so many cases, it's difficult to contain. You got to do mostly mitigation. When you get down... You've got to be able to implement 
containment so that you never, ever have to go back to mitigation. You want to, or we would have to do contact tracing and those kind of more arduous steps of trying to contain these localized outbreaks. Do we have that infrastructure in place? Right now, it's getting in place. I mean, I'd like to tell you, yes, of course, 100%, good to go, next question. But that's not the way it is. You know, the country as a whole, both government and state, are trying right now, rushing, to get that in place. And that means easy testing, widely available. The people committed to doing the identification, isolation, and contact tracing. The facilities to isolate people with coronavirus disease away from society. You don't want to do what the Chinese did. I mean, they essentially pulled people out and locked them up. We're not going to do that. This is the United States of America. But we want to make sure that people, as they're recuperating, are not infecting others. So that's what we need to have in place. I hope we do. I hope we do. Or it's going to be a long stretch. Or it's going to be a long stretch. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Global X ETFs. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing carefully, consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Company. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. To go from mitigation to containment and stop another massive outbreak happening, it seems like we really need to have effective and widespread testing. You said it. Absolutely. We don't have it yet. Are we going to get there? You know, the people who are responsible for the testing, I don't mean to pass the buck because, you know, I'm not a testing guy. I get you the vaccines and the drugs and the things you need. But I am a part of the task force and I accept the responsibility for what goes on in the entire task force. We are told that there will be flooding with testing in the next few weeks so that by the time we get to that point, we should not have that issue with the availability of testing. And when I say that, I swallow hard because every time I say that, I get a call from someone who says, I wanted to get tested and I couldn't get tested. And the task force has been saying that they will flood the nation with tests right, for right. weeks and it hasn't right. happened. You know, I think we got to be careful because it isn't up to the task force or necessarily the federal government to flood the country with testing. Because right now it's in the hands of the private sector, the big companies that make these, that make the machines, that make the cassettes, that make the ingredients. That's where it is. And that's where it's got to happen, because that's been why our country has been so successful. 
we have an incredible private enterprise that gets things done that the government can never get done. Another challenge that I see are these glimmers of hope that we have. And a big one is that there's a treatment coming. And you said you're responsible for vaccines and drugs. And one that we've heard a lot about, chloroquine, maybe it's effective, but the studies aren't there. Is just talking about it giving people a false hope? Well, it depends on what you mean by false hope. I mean, you've heard what I've said. I've said it many times. I'll say it again. The evidence that we as scientists require to say that something definitively works is safe and effective is not there for hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. There have been some anecdotal reports and there have been some series that have done a controlled trial to say it does have some benefit and others that say it doesn't. Based on that, in a similar situation to what we saw with HIV years ago, when you don't have any proven therapy, there are a lot of people and a lot of physicians who feel in the relationship and agreement and trust between a physician and a patient that you could prescribe a drug that's approved for another reason, that as long as you explain to the patient the truth, the risk and the benefit, the fact that the data are not overwhelmingly strong, and there is some risk, but the risk is small. If they understand that, that's the reason why there's a lot of this being distributed on an off-label use virtually everywhere, including in New York City. This is an area where you have had differences with the president. How do you manage these moments when you two don't agree? I mean, you see how I managed it. You've been watching TV. I continue to say what I consider is evidence-based facts, and facts don't lie. I mean, I don't get involved, nor want to get involved in any confrontations. And when you present those facts, do you feel like he listens? Yeah. You know, I do it in a respectful way. I always stick by the facts. I never would change my tune for any reason, because that's what I do. I'm a scientist. I'm a physician. I'm a public health person. You're a public health person who's been leading this agency for decades, looking at how the U.S. response has played out at a federal level, at a state level, at a local level. Do you believe that the federal government should have a broader mandate to more effectively manage the next pandemic? Prior to this, we put together a pandemic preparedness plan that was geared towards an influenza or an influenza-like illness. You know, in fact, if you go back over the records... I have said that the thing that bothers me the most, people always ask you, what keeps you awake at night? Well, it's irrelevant now because I don't sleep anymore. But, uh, you know, it's the emergence of a new virus that is a respiratory-borne virus that efficiently transmits and that has the capability of having a high morbidity and mortality. And unfortunately, that's where we are right now. We have a country that traditionally has left a lot of the discretion locally to the governors, the states, the mayors, and others. Certainly, there needs to be a central repository of both recommendations and equipment. I mean, that's very, very clear. But, you know, the states are pretty good at getting things done. But if the federal government had the power to say, everybody, all Americans, shelter in place, would that have helped in this moment? You know... The guidelines that were the first 15-day and then now merged into an additional 30 days actually say that? I mean, I, I respect your asking that question, but how many times have I, well, the vice president does it more than I do, but hold up that card that says, you know, 15 days, 30 days to stopping the spread? 
If you read carefully what's there, it is telling the American public, the states, the governors, the mayors, and everyone that you should be doing that. How far away is pre-coronavirus normal? You know, it's interesting. I don't know, after having experienced this historic and dreadful, I was going to say challenge, but it goes well beyond the challenge, this, this horrible situation that we're in, I don't think we're ever going to get back to free-flying lack of attention to what transmissibility of infections are. I think that people are going to be careful. I don't think we ever should ever shake hands ever again, to be honest with you. Not only would it be good to prevent coronavirus disease, it probably would decrease the incidence of influenza dramatically in this country. Emotionally, what should we be preparing ourselves for in terms of the new normal? in terms of some realistic middle ground between pre-coronavirus normal and total restrictions that we're under now. And you're talking about the issue of social distancing and physical separation? Yeah, like American life. Yeah, I think American life will gradually get back to normal when we get a vaccine. As I said, a vaccine will take about a year to a year and a half to get. I feel cautiously optimistic that we will get a vaccine. It certainly is not going to be ready for next month or the next few months. But if we get one or more vaccines in the next year to a year and a half, that would absolutely be a game changer in getting things really back to normal. In the absence of a vaccine, we're going to have to be careful. That doesn't mean you're never going to get back to some semblance of normality, but you're going to have to be careful. I guess I just think we're gearing up for Easter. There's Passover. There are these moments when we gather with our loved ones and our families and friends and we are sacrificing those right yes for you are. for this and yes i don't feel like my family and friends the people i work with that we have a clear understanding of when we're going to be free of this and so what can you tell them you know unfortunately That is the reality in which we are in. You know, I'd like to make everything happy talk, but that's not what I do. So the situation is we hope, we hope that by the end of this 30-day extension, that we will start to see the light at the end of the tunnel where we can say, you know, we're pretty confident that we can gradually start approaching some degree of normality. I think it's going to happen. I think things are going to turn around. I like what I'm seeing in New York. Governor Cuomo yesterday showed some data that was encouraging that over the previous three days, New York has seen a decrease in hospitalization, admissions to intensive care and intubations. That's a good sign. I'd like to see that extended over several more days. Then I'd like to see the sharp decline in that slope. And when we do, then I could get back to you and say, you know, I feel a little bit better about the possibility that we will be able to approach normality within that time frame. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure being with you. Thanks for having me. That's all for today, Tuesday, April 7th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.